I have the, I, okay. That should be pretty decent, right? Okay. Make sure today that you leave this place knowing that you are saved to the glory of God. Thanks. That one I'm going to choose. If you believe that, friends, you don't know the gospel. Is that the wonder of the cross is that no one gets injustice. If you, if you end up under the wrath of God, it is because you've rejected his provision for you and you are justly punished for your sin to what the scriptures teach. I think the Bible does teach that God desires the salvation of all men, that he has provided uh, for uh, the, the salvation of all men. And therefore, anyone who, who ends up under the wrath of God, it is because they have rejected his provision for them, and they are justly punished for their sins. The question that seeks to provide an answer to this question, for whose sins did Jesus die? The extent of the atonement asks the question, for whose sins did Jesus die? There are only two answers, two possible answers to that question. Either Jesus died for the sins of some people, or Jesus died for the sins of all people. All right. Uh Can you guys hear me now? Jacob, can you hear the sound now? It looks like it's on now. So, man, I don't know what the deal is. My microphone just muted that whole time. And I was saying a bunch of good stuff right there. So that's <laughs> messed up. <laughs> but, okay, so I'm going to have to repeat myself for a third time. I'll keep it real short. We're going to be looking at a bird's eye view 
on the the three heavenly witnesses um, from 1 John 5, 7. And this is a very controversial passage. Um, it looks like everyone's saying the sound is good now, so I appreciate it. I don't know what the deal is. I literally unmuted the thing. It showed it was unmuted, and as soon as I started talking again, it muted itself. So anyways, whatever. So anyways, so Stephen Avery um, is a very controversial person when it comes to talking about the three heavenly witnesses for a lot of different reasons. And it, since the sound was off, I'll just repeat what I was saying in that particular um, that particular um, point right there. So it, a lot of you have concerns with Stephen's theological perspective on the doctrine of the Trinity. And Stephen and I were talking real briefly before we actually went live here. And it doesn't seem like it is really as controversial as what a lot of people are making it out to be. And I want to give Stephen a chance to give his position on that with an explanation and not just something that, you know, a lot of, pe a lot of the time uh, people will make a claim about what you actually believe and it may or may not be true. So I do think that's related to today's topic, but it's not directly related to the text itself. Uh, so we want to do as much as we can to make sure the focus of today's conversation is going to be on the text. And at the end, if we get a chance, we'll, we'll give Stephen the opportunity to give an explanation for what his view on the Trinity is and uh, how that's been related through, to, through the historical side of the argument with who else has had that perspective. And I think Nick Sayers did a good job of pointing that out in the conversation that I had uh, with Peter Gurry and Elijah Hickson. Um, and uh, I can't remember the other guy name, guy's name, Mike Brown, I think, um, online earlier. So, yeah, um, let's see. Let's. Oh, and I want to give you all a chance for the audience to call in. So at the end of the show, we're going to give you a chance to call in with your questions or comments and talk to myself and Stephen. Then that number is going to be eight one six eight six six zero zero two five, and I'll give that number again as we go through. Uh, but without drawing this out any longer, um, let me get Stephen on, and we're gonna we're gonna get rolling here. So, Stephen, I've got you on the screen. Thank you again for coming on today. I really appreciate it, and I'm really looking forward to today's conversation. Uh, me too, John. Thank you so much. Let me just start uh, asking the Lord Jesus to give us grace, understanding, uh, and and to work together, iron sharpness, and that His name would be glorified, and that His scriptures would come alive to us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Um, and also, if you don't mind, let me let me read the actual two main verses that we're yep. discussing today. There's probably people listening who don't really know. In First John five seven and eight, there are two verses, and they're integrated deeply into the whole chapter and into the Johannine writings. But the two key verses read like this: For there are three. This is verse seven. 1 John 5, 7. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. There's an incredible parallel parallelism there. And those two verses are what we're discussing today. The first verse, with the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost dropped out, uh, well, let's be, we'll be neutral for a minute, does not, is not in most of the historic uh, uh, Greek manuscripts and none of the early ones. The second verse is. Yeah. So the question is, uh, for us is whether that first verse with the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost 
Is it scripture or is it the abominable tampering of man? It's got to be one or the other. Yeah. Go ahead, Joshua. No, that's good. So let's start with uh, kind of an introduction for yourself, if you could. And uh, what I'd like you to do is just take a second, give us a little bit of information about yourself, about the forum that you have online where people can access some of the work that you've done on the subject. Um, but also, I'd like to know um, what, what's actually impacted you and your views on the study of textual transmission um, as it relates to the text and as it relates to your view on the King James Version. So um, you hear so much today that uh, about the King James Version that it just seems like if anyone says that they even like the King James, they read the King James, if they hold to the King James as being, uh, a, a, if you even call it the Word of God, it just seems like there's so much controversy around that. Um, it, you can be labeled as King James Version only, holding a re-inspiration pers- per- perspective on the English um, translation um, of the Bible. So if you could just give us an introduction to yourself and uh, how all that's related, if you could. Okay, uh, well, when I came to faith back in the 1970s, uh, in the Lord Jesus, I did not, I was not using King James. It, that, it was a secondary version back then. It, the big one was the NIV. It had just come out with the New Testament, and, I, and we thought it was the best sliced bread going. Later on in the 90s, I got confronted, partly by the Internet, no, but also by some dear friends who had studied the issue, and I got confronted with a challenge. Why am I using the corruption, what I now know to be the corruption versions, NIV, NIS? And I moved out of that. I first moved out of that to using like the New King James, and a, I was a sacred name, I was using the sacred name King James. I was using, but I was sort of avoiding the King James because I it had this stigma that it must be, you know, I had, but as I looked into it more and more, the King James seemed to stand up perfectly to all the challenges. The other versions did not. I call all of those versions that are from the received text, we call the Reformation Bible. If somebody is using a new King James, uh, it's vastly superior to the uh, TN, uh, NIV, ESV, HCSB, and all of that. Vastly, vastly superior, but it's still not the pure Bible. So as I got challenged, somebody, I got into a debate with somebody, oh, I watched the debate on the Heavenly Witnesses. Cyprian was the issue, about 95 this was, on the internet. And I was amazed that somebody was actually claiming, I mean, I read the text, it said, and Cyprian said, it is written of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, these three are one. And I was just shocked that somebody was saying, well, he wasn't really talking about the verse. He was talking about something else. He was talking about the next verse, and he was allegorizing it. And I got so shocked that I began a study of the verse, and I learned that it's the central verse in the battle of the Bible. The textual critics have to discard it totally. If, if, if the heavenly witness is, is true, the whole theory has to be discarded. So, And they get mocking about it, angry. One guy in England called it, I think it was David Parker or Elliot, this ridiculous business of the of the of the uh, Johannine comma or comma Johannium, uh, and they are so invested in that the verse cannot be considered, but they don't really know the history. The history of the debate is an incredible topic. They don't really know the supports of the verse. They don't really know the internal grammatical harmony parallelisms 
that support this as being John's writing. And so they have a vested interest in just being dismissive, okay? Uh, one of the gentlemen you spoke to 10 years ago, 2012, James Snap, he was actually researching it honestly back then. But for the most part, they're not honest. You know, they just accept it as part of their dogma, their religion, their textual criticism, uh, factoid. We know that this is not the scripture, and anybody who thinks it is has to be uh, have their head on backwards. James White is another example of that. He speaks that way. Oh, if you even defend it. So, I studied it, and I, I corresponded for many, many years with the late Michael Maynard, who wrote a historic book on the, the Heavenly Witnesses. Uh, he passed away in 2014, and we corresponded for many years, helping looking ahead to maybe his next book, learning, and we kept getting astounded by the evidences we were finding. And that has continued as we go on. We had a, a recent evidence three months ago, four months ago, about Eusebius and some words he spoke to Marcellum, against Marcellum, that were critical, that helped give insight. And so I just got myself invested in this as being, since the whole Bible battle focuses on this verse in many ways, I, I really felt uh, a calling and a heart to understand, a heartfelt uh, sense that I, I wanted to understand, and if it was the will of the Lord Jesus, just to help bring it forth to people. So that's how, that's how I think that's good for now. What, are, what elements did I miss? Did I miss anything in that? No, I think that's oh, good. My, my internet, my in, okay, I'll just say my internet uh, thing is, I have a, a, a group called Pure Bible, it's a group on Facebook, and I have a sort of a research forum called Pure Bible Forum. But people can contact, you know, you, most of the people listening will be Facebook-oriented. They can find out about that yeah. easily. Perfect. Um, so let me use that to kind of transition to the next part of our conversation. And it seems like, based off of what you just said, a lot of what you just said is going to be controversial. Um, and, and there's a lot of reasons for that. But it, it also seems like a lot of what you write about, um, whether it's on your forum, whether it's on Facebook, or whether it's just conversations that you would have like what you're doing today, um, it seems like there's just so much controversy, so much frustration um, around what you're saying and what people are hearing. Um, and and <laughs> I mean, even even the conversation leading up to this, I had a lot of people uh, that were telling me like, hey, you shouldn't have him on because he may have a strange view of the Trinity, um, which we'll get to. Um, or you shouldn't have him on because he's not he's he's given a, a critique on Greek grammar. Uh, but he doesn't uh, speak Greek. He does. He's not fluent in Greek. He's not qualified to give any. Uh, he's not qualified to give any. Um, you know, critiques on Greek grammar when he's not a Greek scholar, um, and and just stuff like that. So why do you think there's so much controversy? Why do you think that there, people are would say stuff like that to keep you from kind of having a voice in the conversation? Well, that's a good question. There's another one. He believes that Sinaiticus was made in the 1800s. You can't have that conspiracy theorist. Oh, yeah. That's another one. And a couple others. Uh, I don't really know why the antagonism is so great. Uh, I'm a pretty mild-mannered guy, you know. Yeah. But this type of uh, antagonism, there's sort of a spiritual principality behind the modern versions that is sort of underpinning that antagonism. Uh, one of the gentlemen who's probably my biggest attacker, you know, he studied under Daniel Wallace, 
and he wrote a paper or two on the Heavenly Witnesses, you know, and so he feels this is like a personal challenge, and he's got to pull out every barrel of attack. So uh, a lot of the people just say the, the developed a Weltanschauung that any King James Bible believer should not be taught to. You know, maybe if I was simply a Reformation Bible, like the confessional, Bibliolo confessional Bibliology people, or maybe if I was like not so sure that the King James Bible is God's pure and perfect word, then they might talk to you. But they'll accuse me of being circular, but circular is as circular does. The circular, circularity of arguments can appear on both sides. And I want to emphasize one thing. I became a believer in this verse, and that helped me to come to the King James Bible view. I did not, I was not a King James Bible believer when I first studied this verse. I, I liked it, but when I studied the heavenly witnesses and saw how crazy the antagonism was, that helped me to say, look, the King James Bible stands up, it, it looks, feels, it's alive, uh, I'm not going to challenge the, the claim that it's the pure and perfect word of God, but you know, I'll, but I'll study it with anybody. And if there are cases where the evidence is less clear on the King James, I, I will acknowledge it. You know, As, you know, scholastics have their place, but the heavenly witness is not such a place. Neither is Acts 8:37. Those two are sister verses. Yeah. Acts 8:37 is the baptism testimony verse. Those verses are so rock solid. They don't need Greek, the Greek majority manuscripts. They're rock solid on other bases. So I don't know why, though. I can't really delve too much. There's so many different attacks. I just mentioned one. I can't really delve too much into it. One of them really didn't like the Sinaiticus thing, but he also has a vested interest because I challenge how he defends the ending of Mark. That's James Snap. And uh, others just have been taught that you can't talk to King James Bible people. Oh, here's another thing. King James Bible people have made bad errors over the years. Even in the, King, in the debate, they like this whole two streams thing, which is not really true. So, you know, it is true that some people have been frustrated working with uh, King James Bible believers with the arguments they give. So I just feel it's my uh, responsibility to give to give you know, like like that basketball player that was called the truth. And we got to have the truth. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, the uh, I'll I'll stop there. Go ahead. Okay. Um, okay. So let's get into a bird's eye view. Go get into the topic itself. When when we're talking about inspiration and we're talking about preservation, um, can you kind of kind of give us uh, the bird's eye perspective on those two things? What does it mean to have? the inspiration of the Word of God, and, uh, it, and and has God preserved what was originally inspired? And then we can get into uh, the conversation of variants and specifically this variant and kind of start okay. there. Well, inspiration without preservation is nothing Asian. I mean, if something was inspired 2,000 years ago or 3,000 years ago, and we don't know what it is because there was no preservation, on what basis could you claim inspiration? Inspiration has to have preservation to be a viable doctrine. Now, the preservation can be of various forms. One of the problems is that people have felt that uh, preservation must mean the exact, exact text was maintained 
every year, kept pure in all ages. But that wasn't the history. We can go to, uh, say, 1000 AD, and we can't find any really perfect text. There was lots of good Bible in the Greek. There was lots of good Bible in the Latin. So this is what you might call, if you want to be uh, take a chipper word, restorational preservation. When the Reformation Bible came in, it took the harmony of the, of the beauty of the Greek and the Latin and melded them together and actually reconstructed the original text. That was the key thing. So the people who had argued that kept pure in all ages meant that all, some particular manuscript, they had egg on their face. There's no way, way to defend that. The only defendable view of inspiration and preservation uh, is that generally the text was inspired in the Greek and Latin and Syriac, the Syriac spirit, and also that God never foisted phony scriptures in any of those languages. There are no verses that I've ever heard of in the major languages that really are not scripture. Now, sometimes things dropped out, like in, in Greek, the uh, Acts 8.37, in that language line. But nothing was ever given by God. So that I consider that to be, the, uh, the term I use is the, uh, the preservational imperative. God had to keep it together, and now we have the true text under the preservational imperative, and the key turning point was the Reformation Bible, the works of Erasmus, Stephanus, and Bezang, unto the AV learned men, that they were part of a godly uh, unction, imperative, that brought back into our hands and brought back for revival the fullness of the scriptures that had come out of the pens of the apostles and writers of the New Testament. Does that make sense? You got that? Yeah, it does. Um, would you call that re-inspiration? No. Okay. I don't know. These people these words, re-inspiration, double inspiration. <laughs> anything that scripture is uh, by First Timothy three sixteen is inspired. Yeah. And that could be the that could be the Geneva Bible, a bunch of verses you read. Any according to Second Timothy three sixteen. Any, all scripture is given of God. I don't have it memorized at the moment. But any, it's all inspired. And, uh, good, uh, and it lists the benefits of the scripture. Yeah. So uh, it's not, it's, scripture is inspired. Ideas of re-inspiration, double inspiration, those are like constructs made up largely to attack Peter Ruckman, <laughs> you know, yeah. maybe who was a little edgy, but was, should be respected for the work that he did. Um, so no, I don't use re-inspiration. It's not re nothing was lost. All those verses that were in the Bible at 1000 AD and the Greek and the Latin, they were scripture. Yeah. So there was no need to re-inspire them. The only thing that happened in the Bible was learned men with hearts and faith went to the Greek, the Latin, and the Syriac and restored the fullness of connected scripture. There's a common fallacy called the fallacy of composition, which says that it works two ways, but you try to take from the from the individual to the fullness, or from the fullness to the in individual incorrectly. Is is the Geneva Bible scripture? Yeah, it's scripture. Is it perfect? No, but it is scripture. Is the King James Bible scripture? Definitely. Is it perfect? Good case. I I'll go for that. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about that a little bit. We're talking about preservation, and we're talking about some of the text variants. And you obviously are going to see text variants throughout history in whatever um, text platform that you're looking in, uh, even pre-Reformation, pre-printing press, all, and then post-printing press, 
and uh, post the formulation of the different um, text platforms themselves. So you see variants within the TR tradition, within the authorized version tradition, within the Byzantine majority tradition, and even within the critical text tradition. So I guess when we're talking about preservation and we're, we're looking at the different variants, where do you, where do you see the, the doctrine of preservation as it's related to that part of the conversation? Do you think um, that maybe we've got our definition wrong when it comes to preservation there? Oh, um, I just managed to lose my little spot when I'm visual with you. Uh, just give me a second here, okay? Okay, yeah. And I just got to turn something off. I have to figure out where we are. <laughs> All right, so there are variants. I'll, I'll speak anyway, right, to what you're saying. Here we go. I think we're back. There are variants to uh, each, within each tradition. In the Reformation Bible, I want to point out that it was an uphill from the first from the first edition of Erasmus and the Complutensian Polyglot. It was an uphill uh, variance until 1598 Bazet and the King James Bible, okay? So it wasn't simply variance. It was an uphill providential movement to purify the text. Uh, in the King James Bible tradition, the variants are very small, but you might say that there was an uphill little bit. They got rid of some of the uh, printer errors and there was a little tweaking of the, the grammar. And and I, I like Michael Verschur's Cambridge pure Cambridge Bible. So you can say that there's a similar element there of just a, a, a tweaking uphill. Uh, within the critical text, who cares? It's, cor it's corrupt everywhere. It's, it was corrupt in, uh, before Westcott and Hort. The 1871 Westcott and Hort was a disaster and it has not gotten any better since and sometimes it gets worse. So yeah, there are variants in the text, but they don't claim to have a text anyway. So they don't really care. Yeah. Um, they so came Go ahead. Oh, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I, but, okay, so you, you just said that it was an uphill battle um, to purify the text. Um, my, I wouldn't say battle. It was an uphill providential, providential okay. uh, happening. Go ahead. So how is that, how, how is that related to preservation if it, if it needed purification? That's a good question. Um, it was all part of the process of the, preser the preservation. Well... I mean, when I talk about the King James, there's really nothing in the King James. Well, let's take Luke 2.22 in the, in the Reformation Bible. That had a radical change when, uh, I think it was correct in the Complutensian, but then Beze, then it was wrong. It was their purification yeah. and all of the Erasmus and Stephanus editions. And then Beze uh, corrected it in the late 1590s, and that got into the King James. And uh, even though the Stephanus 1550 did not have it. Okay, so was that a, so, because I'm going to take your question and say, was that, that what was preserved? It had been preserved in the, in the Latin all the time, because the Latin was always singular. And it was never yeah. going to be, uh, it was never going to be his purification. They had big things about the purification of Mary. So the Latin had always been there. It was only a process, an uphill process, that finished when Beza put it into his. Um, by the way, I'm not a. I'm not sure on pronunciation of names. I don't make a lot of effort, but I think I'm close. <laughs> uh, when he when he uh, put it into the at least it was the 1598. It might have been a lot earlier when he put it into his editions. He was simply being an agent of the preservation, taking from the Latin, 
what was true and eliminating what had been dropped and wrong in the Greek. So the preservation was to some extent part of the process of the Reformation Bible uh, purification. Okay, the Reformation Bible as a whole, the Latin corrected the Greek and the Greek corrected the Latin. Both were used to correct the other. And that, and then in certain cases, it did not happen right away. In the Heavenly Witnesses, it did not happen to the third edition of Erasmus. Uh, and even then was resisted at times. And then, and X, uh, uh, and excuse me, Luke 2.22, it happened much later. So it was all part, the preservation, the restoration process was an element of the preservation. Yeah. Okay, that's good. Now let's, let's, uh, we've taken enough time, I think, for the bird's eye level. Let's get a little deeper and a little more specific into the conversation. I think the majority of people who are going to be watching this um, are going to be on that level of the conversation anyways. Um, but so here's a quote. James Snap says, that Stephen Avery, you mentioned it earlier, that you're, that you're a conspiracy theorist that's, who supports the quote-unquote Simonides made the Sinaiticus silliness. So um, would you do me a favor and just comment on that? What is What exactly is that controversy? And uh, what, do you, what do you make of the fact that there are so many um, recognized different scribal edits on Sinaiticus, that it was handled and multiple changes were made to Sinaiticus. Obviously, you alluded to earlier that you do think that it's a 18th century forgery. Um, to make, okay, 19th, 19th century forgery to make it look like um, something that it would be from the 3rd century or 4th century. Well, um, but let, yeah, let could me, you yeah break it down for us? Let, let me challenge that a little bit. I don't know if it was a forgery originally or a replica that, that went south. Uh, a replica would have, uh, Simonides' own story was that he made it for the Tsar of Russia to give him something really nice and that they would get a printing press down at uh, Pantelimon or Rusico Monastery. I don't know. You know, it might, he, they might have been trying to pawn it off as early. You know, it's hard to say. But it might have just been a replica that went south. Okay, now, when you talk about the corrections, you have to... Uh, understand how many hands that version, that that manuscript went through from when Benedict started it around 1838 or 7, we don't know the exact year. Simonides came aboard in 1840 and then it went to, it was completed maybe 41 or 42, I don't have these years exact. And then he brought it over to Constantinople and it went from Constantinople to um, down to Sinai. Many hand, and then in Sinai, where do those Arabic uh, notes in there come from? Easy. Lots of people in Sinai knew Arabic. And they put little Arabic scribbles on it. So there was some corrections done internally by Benedict, Simonides, uh, Kalinikos, and, and there was an, uh, Theo, uh, maybe Theophylact. They might have made a lot of those corrections. In fact, Simonides said or as Kalinico said, it was going to really got to the point where they were going to redo the whole thing because they were correcting it so much. And, but it never happened. It ended up in Sinai. So the corrections is not really difficult. I actually answered uh, James's 20 points, point by point. One or two of them had some interest, but for the most part, they were a multi multiplication of nothings. In other words, the arguments he was making were either neutral or actually against him. And I went through all 20 of them. One or two of them had some 
a little bit of weight, but only one or two out of the 20. So uh, you really, the fact that the three hands making it and the five whatever hands uh, correcting it, uh, you know, that fits very well the scenario that Simonides and Benedict explained. One of the tricks that they do is they take out one quote of Simonides and say, oh, he must have lied there because he said he wrote the whole thing. Okay, people exaggerate sometimes, you know. Or maybe he was thinking the New Testament, which he probably did write the whole thing. But, you know, Simonides, Tischendorf lied terribly. He, he thieved the manuscript. <laughs> he he, uh, he uh, probably added, you know, anyway, he thieved it. He, he took it out at night. He sent it up to... Uh, Leipzig, or actually I found out recently he might have gone to another city. And then he, uh, 15 years later, he brought out the other one, and the other section was colored, it was stained, and in fact, Kalinico said, hey, he stained the, he colored the manuscript when he had it, in the exact years, so that there were two parts. I'm getting too far adrift. So let me just say that the evidence as a whole fits the Simonides exposition much better than it fits the, fits the Tischendorf. The manuscript is far too good. The, the, it turns like yesterday's newspaper. The ink is sometimes lines like as if it was just, just put on. It does not look or feel like an ancient manuscript. And the people acknowledge it. Uh, Helen Shenton of the uh, British Library said it's in phenomenally good condition. Well, yeah, how did it get to be in phenomenally good condition? It was bumping around the desert sands for 1,700 years one, one way. It was made in 1840. You see? Yeah. So you got to take the evidences. You got to look at them both on both sides. And I would say that the evidence that Sinaiticus was made in 1840 is uh, is basically lock solid, and yeah. and that there's no argument that I have seen against it that is strong. There was one issue, a couple issues came up, but we'll, I'll talk about that some other time. Okay. So Nick Sayers, while you were ex- while you were just giving that explanation, he wrote this. So if you are on Sinaiticus. Um, if, if you agree that, well, let me just read it word for word. So if you are S-U-S, I'm not sure that that's what he meant to write in there. On Cindy Atticus, you are a quote-unquote conspiracy theorist. But if you believe Mark didn't write the last 12 verses like Hickson or like most, that the P.A. is not by John, you're a scholar. If Avery said that Moses didn't write the Torah, these guys wouldn't bat an eye. But apparently, if you think that Sinaiticus is a forgery or Sinaiticus was a reconstructed text that's uh, not original, then you're a conspiracy theorist. So would you have any comments on that particular... Oh, no, Nick, Nick is right on that. I saw him post something like that earlier, and he's right. Um, James Snap, I'll give a specific example, on the ending of Mark, he's supposed to be a defender. He wrote a book, Authentic. But his theory is that Marcus interrupted us. He was interrupted right before he got to the last 12 verses. No historical evidence for that. Taken away, maybe got the coronavirus. There's no right. Anyway, <laughs> you know, something happened to Mark. He was in prison. He was killed. Right just as he was getting to the end, okay? Uh, he didn't write anything in James's theory. And then friends of Mark, somebody later found something that Mark or somebody else had written that really was like his, and they tacked it on. Talk about a conspiracy theory. That's a conspiracy theory, okay? And and it's not really authentic. I have to get this in. He doesn't really believe it's authentic. If you don't believe that Mark wrote the whole gospel, if you believe somebody else wrote those last 12 verses, 
the skeptics will say, you're claiming it was not, not by, you know. So that's a conspiracy theory because uh, he did mention the, the ending of Mark, I think Nick did. Yeah. Uh, my theory is much simpler. Uh, Mark wrote the whole gospel, just like it, it was analyzed by Dean Burden and Brodus. And they did a great analysis. And Mark wrote the whole thing. The arguments that it's not Mark and was silly. And he wrote the whole thing. So I'm the anti-conspiracy theorist there. You see, I have the simple, simple theory. The Bible was early. It was written the way we got it. Yeah. Probably written in the 40s, etc. That's good. Okay, so we've talked a bit about Sinaiticus. Um, in, in the work of, that Peter Gurry has done on the CBGM, it seems like what he has what he has identified as um, doing away with the idea of text families and and showing that there seems to be more support for indiv- individual manuscripts as opposed to manuscript families um, he does say that there's it, it seems more likely that if we were going to use the text family um, wording that it would be related to the Alexandrian family and it, and it seems like Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, Alexandrinus, um, those would be of the Alexandrian family. So my question is, what of Vaticanus and the Alexandria uh, family do you see any connection with the thought that Origen had anything to do with this particular text? That he may, <laughs> that did. He, what do you think about that? Start there, and maybe we can draw it out a little bit. I know that, that's a whole fascinating area now. Uh, I'm not uh, an origin boogeyman guy. Yeah. I think he might have been pretty bad. And he might have messed up. His, but I see him do some good arguments. He did the one for in, in John 5 for the pool. Of the, and he did the one, oh, for one of the cities. Oh, uh, 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 um, the swine marathon that they have with the swine going 43 miles from Jurassic. He corrected that. He wasn't, he wasn't always wrong. He yeah. did some good Bible work. So I don't, he was, his doctrines, he had transmigration. I think there's more of a finger on Eusebius as having done some tampering or wrong decisions in 325. Yeah. Now, how did Vaticanus become a corrupt text? Let's assume, I'm not going to assume it's from the 300s. It could be from the 500s. It used to be thought to be uh, by Mount Falcon and others to be four five hundreds. They just came up with this 300s idea because they wanted to work with it in Sinaiticus as the, the dynamic duo, you know, the Batman of Vaticanus and the Robin of Sinaiticus, although Tischendorf would have liked to reverse it. So they, how did Vaticanus become a corrupt text in the Egyptian? Let's assume that it was made in Egypt. Well, we do have a papyri, also misstated, but let's say it's three or four hundred or something, or I should say two limited dated. That's very close to Alexander, uh, to Vaticanus. So one one and the other, they show that in that area there was a Reader's Digest type of text that was popular in Egypt. Now Kurt Olan gave a very who's not a King James Bible guy. He gave a very and this will get Bill Brown very upset, but it's so true. He gave a very solid warning that. You should be careful with the papyri because they were from the Gnostic sands of Egypt. And Gnosticism basically ruled in Egypt to 200 AD and was very strong thereafter. So their whole perspective to the text was different than in the faith-filled Bible believing. This is my word. So uh, Alain gave a wonderful warning about that. 
So what does that mean? The wild papyri are of very limited use. And, and so that one that fits Vaticanus shows that there was a strain, I think it's P72, shows that there was a strain within uh, the sands of Egypt to have a text. When I say Reader's Digest, basically it's, it's omission, 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 change, 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 omission, omission, omission. They, the guy was in a rush, so one of the guys, either the one who did P72 or one who did uh, Vaticanus or the common source, he was in a big rush. He decided to drop things out while he was writing, and he gave us an abbreviated, corrupted Reader's Digest text. So who cares about it? Bergen pegged it one, two, three, you know? So really, I don't blame Origen for that. Yeah. He wasn't the one who caused that corrupted text. He has some good things, some bad things, doctrinally problematic, but I don't necessarily see him as the bad guy on either the Hexapla or the uh, New Testament text. Yeah. No, that's good. Okay, so you did. You said that you think Eusebius played a little bit more of a role in this than than Origen specifically. Now, there's 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 mention that Eusebius may have been the guy who was kind of in charge of getting those fifty vellum scrolls up to Constantine, which would be um, the 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 scrolls to support the Alexandrian text that we see. Um, that we would see today. What what would you have to say in commenting on on Eusebius' role um, as it relates to that side of the conversation? Yeah, that's a great question. There's really two or three elements. Number one, um, uh, a very learned scholar named Frederick Nolan, around 1815, wrote in depth about Eusebius's role in the various old Latin texts and things like that. Now he was really focusing on the Heavenly Witnesses, Acts 2028, 20, Acts 830. Seven and some others, and he basically said, now remember, by the time of Eusebius, there was already a split line. So this is not necessarily impugning his motives. Yeah. He may have just been doing what he felt to be doctrinally comfortable. So he may have made sure that those, let's assume that he did do those 50 for Constantine, very possible. Not likely that any of them are Vaticanists, they might not have been full Bibles, but lots of ifs, ands, and buts. But let's assume he had a heavy hand on the transmission of the Bible from 300 AD to, to onward. It's very likely that he had a big hand in keeping the heavenly witnesses out, keeping Acts 37 out, and some a few other changes along the same line. Maybe 1 Timothy 3.16 corruption, although that stayed good in the Greek, so I shouldn't say that. Uh, he That he had a hand. So Frederick Nolan is the key historical element uh, scholar who analyzes this, okay? Uh, Frederick Nolan was later mangled by, just as an aside, by Benjamin Wilkerson, the SBA uh, person who did who did a lot of the modern King James Bible thought. He tried to rely on Nolan, and he twisted it for his own purposes to make the Waldensians the great guys with the old Latin manuscript. Mm-hmm. Nolan said nothing of that of that tone. So he had Eusebius pay. Okay, he didn't prove it. He had one guy who was really fighting him on some stuff. It's a beautiful scholarly debate that nobody studies these types of things. Very few people these days that would really be good. Okay, so I think it might have been Thackeray or somebody who, who, who came against him. Now, when uh, when Hills and some other people, I'll, I'll segue here into a little bit, when they were looking at why the Heavenly Witnesses dropped, a few of the scholars over the years had said, it, it might have occurred in the Sabellian controversies, okay? Now mm-hmm. I'm on the verse at the same time while we're yeah. discussing the Sabellian. 
The Sibelian controversies were 100 or maybe 200. They were not late. They were not anti, uh, they were not post Nicaea. Okay? So they, in those controversies, the heavenly witnesses' verse could be uh, uh, discomforting to the Trinitarians because it says, and these three are one. And it could have been discomforting to the Sibelians if they saw it as Trinitarian. Okay? So it was a perfect time for the verse to be sort of like, a, there could be a split line caused by the dropping of homoio toluton, if I pronounce it. Uh, <laughs> there, could be a split, there could be a split line already. So they always chose to take the, the line without the verse. And then that was uh, exacerbated by Eusebius. Eusebius actually wrote, and we just learned this in the last six months. He wrote against Marcellum that he was against the, the 301. He wasn't talking about, about the verse uh, overtly, but it's obvious that the verse is in the background. And he wrote against that the 301 would be a discomforting idea. He didn't, you know, so in other words, he was acknowledging that he would take it out of scripture if he had a choice, yeah. essentially. Now that, that Talking about the quote. Go ahead. That's interesting. So where, uh, where, where did you, where did you get that information that Eusebius was writing about it and writing against it? Well, the uh, there's a, a gentleman on the web, Roger Pierce, who's a wonderful, yeah. you know, EC, ECW guy, and he somewhere Jerome Buzabon or something, a Dutch fellow, had written a paper. I don't remember where I first saw that, but Jerome uh, spelled a little differently. He found. The he put that verse in his paper, hmm. that Eusebius thing, and and Roger Pierce was working on getting that thing published or something like it. So those were the two gentlemen who sort of pointed me to the actual quote and spot from where Eusebius at Marcellum, contra Marcellum, where he says, "I don't, you know, I'm not the three and one thing. I don't like that. I'm paraphrasing, of course, you know." Yeah. Um, and it's really a dynamite thing. It's also evidence for the verse, but it's also evidence for the history of transmission that men like Eusebius, especially Eusebius, were involved in the, the loss of the verse in the Greek manuscripts. And I want to point out one thing. When we talk about the loss of the verse in the Greek manuscripts, it could have taken, it could have taken a while. It could have been, we only have a lot of manuscripts after 700 AD. So we don't yeah. really know the, the exact transmission from 100 to 700. And Jerome, the, the Jerome of 400 AD, he makes it clear that there were Greek and Latin manuscripts with the heavenly witnesses when he did the Vulgate. Yeah. Okay, that's good. Let's, uh, okay, so let me give you the, the option here. We could either get into some of those contra-arguments that, that you had wanted to get into, or um, the last point that I had on kind of an overarching theme here before we got more specific was was the relationship of Origen, Tregellis, Griesbach, Westcott, and Hort, and specifically in reference to uh, the debate that I had, the roundtable discussion with Peter Gurry, James Snap Jr., and Jeff Riddle a few weeks ago. Jeff had asked... Um, Peter Gurry, what um, what was it? He had asked him what his opinion on um, where he got the the references to Mark, the ending of Mark, not being authored by Mark, but as opposed to being Mark being the author, John being the author, and he had suggested that maybe he got that from Metzger, and Peter Gurry responded and said, well, no, more like Tregellis. 
So, I, my question would be, what is the relationship between Origin, Tregellis, Greasebach, um, Westcott and Hort, kind of, kind of that side of the conversation? Is Does it seem like there's two different camps when it comes to the text, and what, what kind of role were these guys playing? I think it's a mistake to put Origin in with them. Okay. If he, we don't really know that much about his text, and there are many cases where he's just all, all over the map looking backwards at him. But Griesbach to Tregellis to Hort are the three key uh, nouveau critical text people. Um, you know, they were the, Griesbach put out a, a Greek New Testament that had good critical text readings. So did Tregellis, and then and then they were floundering. The critical text people were floundering. They wanted to get away from the TR, but they had a mishmash with with the Griesbach text and the Tregellis text. That's why there was an emphasis to draw the horses all around Hort in 18, was this 1871 Westcott Hort recension. So the, everything before that fell away, okay, uh, like scaffolding, and they had finally had a, a text that they could support because Tischendorf had gotten Sinaticus, they now had a Batman to go with the Robin, and and they could do, all rally behind the Hort uh, it is the recension they called and they they all focused on that as to be the alternative and it had its ups and downs they didn't take over the bible world but they took over most of the scholarship pseudo scholarship world okay connecting them to origin I, I, it's too much of a stretch somebody would have to go paper saying these specific 50 variants that origin did line up with the today's critical text mm -hmm. and 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 we only have five on the other side let somebody do a paper like that and i will i will include origin i have never seen it okay um okay so let's transition from that and get into these specific contra arguments um specifically you had messaged me on facebook and said that when it comes to first john 5 7 because i've spent a lot of time defending first john 5 7 and, and I don't have um, a lot of the knowledge or, you know, a lot of the, the material that, that you have when it comes to these contra arguments. So you said, hey, we need to look at these things. Um, and that's where I was like, hey, like, let's see if we can come on, do a podcast about this and get into some of these arguments. So um, I guess my question would be, where do you want to start when it comes to addressing the three heavenly witnesses and uh, some of this, the side of the conversation that it seems like um, you're taking an angle that a lot of people don't who would who would support and argue for that uh, being authentic. Yeah, we, for, uh, yeah, I do get a little distressed even with the confessional people. They sort of take a milk toast defense. Well, you know, we don't, I don't do that at all. Before we get to the counter arguments, I just want to point out that the Heavenly Witnesses has four super evidences, any one of which can be considered an absolute proof of its authenticity uh, combined with the general Latin predominance. One of them is, is the uh, quote of Cyprian. The German scholar, uh, uh, Franz Piper, that's all he needed. He, and he was not a King James guy, he was a Lutheran. He said, look at that Cyprian quote. There's no way around it. You know, it was beautiful writing he did. And it alone, uh, gets rid of, uh, can be considered to be probative. The Jerome writing in the Vulgate prologue that unfaithful transcribers had 
uh, remove the text. That's that proves it's real. I mean, I'm using the word proof. Nobody likes the word proof, but you know what I'm saying. That proves it's real because Jerome was looking at early manuscripts from 100, 200 AD, and he was saying that some people had been removing the verse. So they made a they made this little flaky accusation that Jerome didn't really write the prologue, but we can discuss that some other time. Then the third yeah. proof is the Council of Carthage, 484, where 400 plus uh, Orthodox said, look at what John said with the Heavenly Witnesses verse uh, against the Hunaric, they call them Arians, but that's a little dubious type of terminology. Yeah. But everybody had it in their Bible, all throughout the Mediterranean. In a failure, how did it get there? It had to be in the at least the original Latin verse, okay? And then the fourth one has to do with the grammar, which we won't go into right now, and other internal evidences like how the text falls apart without the heavenly witnesses. Verse 5 and 6 is redundant. There's no testimony of God. These things go on and on. The whole thing loses cohesion without the heavenly witnesses. So that grammar and the second grammar, which is from Middleton, and those internals combine to force the fact that the Latin came from the Greek. Okay, yeah. so before we go into what the Contra said, I want them to, they don't want to deal with those. They don't really want to deal. They want to harangue. Yeah. Now we can go to their particular thing. Yeah. I just wanted to get that in. No, that's good. So let me push a little bit on that. Um, in particular with the Cyprian qu uh, quotation, I used that argument in my conversation with James Snap. And, uh, and, James White. And he says he says that um, obviously it, that Cyprian didn't quote First John five seven that it's pulled out that it was or you know there's a lot of there's there's ways around to say that Cyprian didn't actually have that quote but what I actually found was when I went through the early church father writings that it looks like there was two different quotations from Cyprian where he he does quote First John five seven but he's not even there he's one of the two earliest church fathers to to have the quotation of First John five seven the other one being Irenaeus who's credited with giving who's credited with translating the Greek into the old Latin so I my question to you I think you mean to I think you mean Tertullian Tertullian my bad yeah yes, Tertullian um, <laughs> thanks for correcting me on that. So those would be the two earliest quotes of that, and Tertullian's obvious. He's credited with bringing it into the Old Latin, which the Old Latin is is generally, which James even agreed that it's it's it would date back to as early as 137 A.D. So what would you do with the Cyprian quote? What would you do with Tertullian as it as it relates to um, the argument that they didn't actually quote it, that, that it wasn't in their text, that it, it was it was transposed from the Latin into the Greek as opposed to vice versa? Well, there's no real way that Tertullian, the Cyprian quote is a central focus because he says, while he's doing it, he says, about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, it is written, and these three are one. Now, and Cyprian is known as an accurate quoter of Scripture. So when he says it is written, he means it's in my Bible. There's really no way around that. He was not allegorizing the spirit, the water, and the blood. It wasn't the way he wrote. Yeah. So if he only had the spirit and the water and the blood, it could not lead to him saying that. I want to add a little bit more to that. Let's assume somehow Cyprian did allegorize that. That still doesn't put the heavenly witnesses into the Bible. That's a good point. Somebody's got to take Cyprian's allegory and expand it into a verse 
that's a beautiful parallelism and put it into the into the margin. Then somebody's got to put it into the Bible. Who did this? When? They don't say. They have no theories. Then beyond that, they have to do it in such a beautiful way. They have to be more Johannan than John, speaking <laughs> about the word, like John does in John 1, like he does in Revelation. They have to be more, they have to build in a Hebrew parallelism that's just beautiful, and then they have to fix the translation of the Greek when it's translated back into Greek. Bridge for sale. This is a nothing theory. Even if somehow Cyprian had allegorized, which is also a nothing theory, that does not give you the verse in the Latin manuscript. The whole theory, now the reason they don't like Cyprian having written that is because people like Wallace, or maybe uh, White, they liked the idea that the verse was created by the Trinitarians in the Arian controversies right. in the 300s. But if Cyprian was quoting his Bible within, and of the Father, the Son, or, or Word, Spirit, these three are one, if he was quoting his Bible with that, that whole theory goes out the window. Yeah. It's, it's completely destroyed. And that is the common theory. So White, so James Snap's a little savvier than that. So he tries to make the insertion back in the 200s, either before uh, Cyprian or involving Cyprian. Yeah. But I just explained to you why it's a nothing theory. Yeah. Even if, number one, just to summarize it, Cyprian did not allegorize that way. It wouldn't make any sense to do so. And, and it would not lead to the verse being in the Bible. Yeah. It, so the theory is down the tube. Yeah, so along those lines, I um, Jonathan Sheffield is a guy who I'm going to have on, uh, I think, towards the end of March, maybe the beginning of April. I can't remember the exact date that we set. But he brings up a good point. So you've got this theory that says that it was inserted into the text at some point, but it, but until but there's no proof for it. So we don't know who the scribe is that inserted it. We don't know when it was inserted. We don't have any textual transmission to say this is when it was inserted. Uh, but we're supposed to just blindly say like it was inserted. We don't know who it is, who it who inserted it, where it was inserted, when it was inserted. Um, but we're to take this theory and and toss out what we know to have been in the text to say like this is not authentic when when you're saying that it is authentic. So it, it just seems to me like uh, like they want like they want us to have the evidence to show that it was always there, but they don't hold themselves to the same to the same standard to show when it was inserted to show that it is inauthentic. Um, but that would be kind of my take on that, and hopefully we'll get a little bit more to draw out on that side of the conversation um, with with Jonathan Sheffield whenever we get him on, but. Um, what would your take be on that? Is Do you think that they should be held um, to the same standard to show when it was inserted if that's the claim that's being made? Oh, definitely. I'm moving a little bit. I had to okay. change my plug. No, Jonathan is 100% right on that. That you, if, if you're going to claim some unusual vector of transmission or insertion and creation, you've got to come up with a viable reason a potential culprit. The same thing happened with the Vulgate prologue. They wanted to figure out who the who would have written that prologue to get it into, uh, uh, you know, Codex Fuldensis so quickly. Way all of a sudden, this prologue written just like him to Ustoshin was in there. How did it get in? So the scholars like Kunso, they said, well, maybe it was Peregrinus, you know, but it didn't work. Other scholars ripped that to shred. 
Uh, maybe it was it was another one. I, I, I just forgot. They tried to give certain people as the author, but then other scholars showed up and said those are ridiculous theories. We don't know who did it. Well, actually, nobody did it. It was Jerome, you know. <laughs> so it's a similar situation that they just come up with a theory, a series of convenience, whatever they can come up with, uh, they do. And and uh, okay, and they are not held accountable to even make it into a viable theory, much less yet, like Jonathan says, name names. Yeah. Right. Um, okay. Every point. Let me just let me just say one. Every point of that theory, Cyprian allegorizing, somebody taking it and somehow making a scripture out of it, uh, a verse, a full verse, beautiful verse in harmony, getting it into the margin, getting it into the text. None of that makes sense, and none of that has, has any evidence at all. Awesome. Um, so let's look at, you said that you wanted to talk about and explain the heavenly and the earthly witnesses, and you say that we can study and be 100% assured that this is uh, Johannine scripture. So why don't we take a second to look at that point first, and then let's talk about, um, we'll get a little more specific as we go from there. Well, the earthly witnesses falls flat. And if you ever go to read exegesis of people discussing the verse from the corrupt text, from the short text, we'll just say short text, it falls flat. There's nothing there. It's hardly readable. And this is truly whether it was some great luminary of the 1800s or whatever. When people write of the meaning of, this, of the parallelism of the heavenly and earthly witnesses, it shines. The belt, the, the scriptures, you know, they shine out at you. They come into harmony with the Johannine writings. They come into harmony with the testimony of God of verse 9. So the heavenly and the earthly witnesses to Jesus as the Son of God have to be together. Now, just to make one thing clear, uh, remember, it says, Father, the Word and the Spirit. And you have big discussion. The Word was made flesh in John 1.14. Uh, hold on a second. I got to get rid of this thing. Hold on. Uh, <laughs> no worries. Okay. Okay, I got rid of that. Okay. Now, well, we lost your video, though. <laughs> all right. Uh, no, I'm coming back. I'm coming back. So, the heavenly and the earthly witnesses, uh, did it come back? Let's see. Not yet. Good? We'll see in a minute. Uh, sorry about that. So, the right. heavenly and the earthly witnesses are a parallelism written by John that, uh, I don't know why it's not. Okay, now I got it. I had to be in the right Skype. There we go. <laughs> Sorry for the, for the little diversion there. You're good. Okay, the, the heavenly and earthly witnesses um, uh, are, are the Johannine explanation in parallelism, in harmony with his writing. For example, he always emphasized two or three witnesses. He always emphasized the word. That's what I talk about. There's so many of these elements that an interpolator would have to be more Johannine than John. You know, so... Which element? The earthly witnesses has a couple of interpretations. I tend to lean toward the one that talks about the water and the blood at, at the cross, combined with into um, your hands, I commend my spirit. Okay? So I know the, uh, most of that or all of that's gone, at least some of it, at least the water and the blood. And into your hands, I commend my spirit. I think the words are a little different in John. So I tend to see it as that being the earthly witnesses, not the Holy Spirit, uh, because that leads to problems. Why would the Holy Spirit be in both, you see? 
the heavenly witnesses, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, there you're talking now to the Trinitarian, those are the three persons of the Godhead. Uh, okay. But they're not really the three persons of Godhead because the Word was made flesh. You'd have to substitute the Son. So which element of that? Is there an element of that that you have a little, you'd like me to try to focus in on when we talk about the heavenly and earthly witnesses? Or did I cover it? Um, yeah, I th there's some things you said there that would be uh, a little bit problematic on the theological side of the conversation for me as a Trinitarian. Um, and maybe we could draw that out at some point. But it, it, I'll just read it. It says in verse 7, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And verse 6 says, This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. And then verse 8 is the earthly witness, and there are three that bear witness in earth the Spirit, and the water, and the blood. And these three agree in one. And, uh, and, and so those are, the, those are basically the earthly witness versus the heavenly witness um, passages in First John 5, 7, and 8. But, but I do think that you, you, you laid out your position there pretty well. I'm not sure exactly what the the theological. You've got me thinking about that side of it now, and I'm trying to I'm trying to stay focused to get to that later, um, if if we can at the end, if we've got time. But but what you what you had written here, um, and what we had talked about before we went live, you said that there's a meaning in the section with the witness of God that Jesus is the Christ, which would be the center of the Johannine writings. So could you take a second to kind of talk about that and expand on that particular point a little bit more? Yeah, well, the, the, let me get my Bible, which I just moved and I didn't bring it with me. Okay, on verse 9, you have, uh, if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater, uh, for this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his Son. If you take out verse 7, it doesn't point to anything. The witness of God is not pointed. Right. But in verse 7, we have that witness of God. Uh, that's why one of the ways that the, the section falls apart. In verse 7, we have, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. That's the witness of God. Th does that mean that there are three co-equal, consubstantial persons, etc.? If that's your doctrine, you would read it that way. If it's not, it doesn't say that. So the witness of God, that Jesus is the Christ, is, is sort of the connection between 9 and 7. The connection that you made between 6 and 8 is a little bit questionable because when Jesus came by water and blood, that could be his birth. So it could be that verse 6 is his birth and verse 8 is the crucifixion. Okay? So I just, want to, I just wanted to give you a little counterpoint there. You can't really connect. Now, if you take out verse 7, 6 and 8 are totally confusing. Nobody can make any sense. Just redundancy. Just confusion. When you put in verse 7, it makes sense. But I don't think that verse 6 should really be called the earthly witnesses because it could be talking about, as with any human birth, the water and the blood. Notice that the Spirit's not there. The water and the blood are the nature of birth. Okay, okay. Um, so let's talk, let's talk about the historical side of the, of, of, um, the authenticity of the heavenly witnesses. The heavenly witnesses, obviously, is going to be verse 7 in contrast to verse 8. And maybe if we have time, we can uh, we can discuss what 
um, everyone is, well, a couple people are saying that you're not allowed to talk about because you're not a Greek grammarian scholar um, as it relates to verse 8, which you briefly touched on there. So let's look at the historical side where um, the first point would be the Anti-Nicene period where you're saying that it does have strong evidences. And I think that you've mentioned it briefly, but um, you transition from that into the Latin and Greek dichotomy. Uh, but you've got a note there that says no Chinese wall. So can we touch on those first two historical points and then maybe look at the, uh, the Reformation period into the transition of the 1800s? Oh, yeah, the no Chinese wall is critical. Tertullian and Cyprian were not Latin, uh, Latin only. Uh, uh, they both had Greek skills. How good? Depends on who you read, but decent. And so, therefore, when they talk about a verse being in their Bible, uh, it, they have an accountability for both the Greek and Latin Bible. That goes on through the ages. Cassiodorus, who was one of the later witnesses in Latin, was very skilled in Greek. You know, And in general, the early church writers, many of them, would work with both Greek and Latin manuscripts. Uh, now, even some of them, even in that later period of the schoolmen and all of that, some of them were, you know, dual language. So that was that. What was the other point? Could you repeat it again? Uh, get help focus me for a second here. Uh, I just did the Chinese wall. Oh, you The Chinese wall is important because one of the myths of textual criticism is we studied the Greek, and, we st and if, if something was quoted by a Latin father or church writer, we don't care about. They even include Jerome in that. And yet Jerome translated the Greek into the Latin, so it's silly to say that he's Latin only. Okay. Um, okay, so um, we, we've, we've talked about, you just mentioned the, the Chinese wall. You've talked about the, the, the Latin, what's the Latin and Greek dichotomy that we've got there as it, as it is related? Well, the Latin and Greek dichotomy is simply that within the Latin church, from all, all time, the verse was quoted, it was discussed, the doctrinal implications were considered at the Lateran Council. They were debating Joachim Fiore's idea of dropping of why the last segment. I won't go into the details. So, but it was always a, a, a vibrant discussion. So one of the manuscripts even went backwards in the Middle Ages and looked at Athanasius, what they thought was Athanasius, Augustine, and uh, uh, Fulgentius, how they had put the forms of the verse in. Notice yeah. that. So you have, in fact, Athanasius is writing about Nicaea. Athanasius, uh, contra Arius, or an Arian, at Nicaea is one of the important Greek evidences. So the, the Latin... Uh, is robust or every every century. The Greek has fits and starts, and it came back up at the Lateran Council, 1200, way before Erasmus, where they put the text in Greek and Latin, and then the early church writers. But there was a period from 700 to 1200, we don't have hardly anything at all related to the heavenly witnesses. Extant in our hands, we don't have anything. But when you go before that, you have dual language evidences like Jerome and Cyprian, and you have some others that I won't go into right now. You have the Eusebius comment to Marcellum, and you have a few others that show, that really give an indication. In fact, the very fact that in these 301 related to the Trinity was the main element of the doctrinal writings, as Charles Forster pointed out, that very fact shows us that it had to come from Scripture in certain statements of faith and different places, they couldn't just make that up. Many of them said, we only go by scripture. 
And then he said that the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, are these three are one. one. So in the Greek, it was a little bit more veiled. It had corn out of the manuscript. It wasn't, the references were fewer. In the Latin, there were many people who actually used the heavenly witnesses directly against what they call the Arians, which is sometimes a questionable term. But the Orthodox Trinitarians used the verse all, and even that's a questionable term, but I'll use it. The Orthodox Trinitarians used the verse again and again and again and again against the Arians. Okay? So when these people say, well, it was never used in the Arian controversy, what they're saying is, it was, we don't have any record of it being used in the Arian controversies in Greek other than the writing of Athanasius against Arius at Nicaea, which they claim was written a little bit later, but probably was written pretty close to the time of the council. Uh, I just talked to a scholar about that. Probably written about 400, 450. And it, it definitely references the heavenly witnesses. Uh, so they make all sorts of claims, but generally the Greek is, has a sparse, direct testimony until the Lateran Council and the Reformation. The Latin has a fully robust, more than much as any other verse, except maybe John 1030. Uh, there's a fully robust uh, discussion of the verse, what it means. Nobody doubted it. Nobody questioned it. And that was the larger church. There's over 100 references, maybe closer to 200, in the Latin in those years to the discussion of what it means. Okay. So the idea only looking at the Greek is silly. Um, okay, uh, now this is a little off topic, but um, for whatever reason, your laptop camera is bouncing all over the place. Um, oh, yeah, let me fix it. No, you're right. I moved I moved to a, on the floor. I just got to settle my, because uh, <laughs> I had to recharge it. You're good. I will stop, stop the bouncing in a minute. See if I can find a good way to do this. I'm getting motion sick. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Wait, wait. Okay. Wait. Okay. Wait. 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 Um, has it always been that way? I mean, you're talking about the Latin and Greek um, diversity as it's related. You said the dichotomy of the Latin and the Greek. Um, so obviously everyone would hold to the fact, the, the, the point that um, the scripture that was inspired by God was originally recorded in Greek and the Old Testament would be Hebrew and Latin. Some people argue that portions of the New Testament were in Aramaic, uh, not Latin, um, Aramaic and, and Hebrew. Right. And um, and and portions of. By the way, the New Testament, the New Testament is not so crystal clear when it comes to Mark, which may well have been uh, written in two languages. Yeah. It could well have been in Latin as well as Greek. Okay, go ahead, continue. Um, so, so yeah, so, so how did they switch to be to being essentially Greek priority people? By the way, the the defenders of the verse sometimes overestimated the Greek as well. They jumped on Montfortianus. They jumped on Stephanus's, you know, uh, mistake with the crochet. Uh, but they, they, they also, to some extent, contributed to this era. But by the time you got to the 1800s, they got to where, if it's not in Vaticanus, if it's not in Sinaiticus later, if it's not in some a few, there's a, 
it's not in about five or six of those early manuscripts. It can't be scripture. They just went to that. It was it was a mistake because it's it's much easier for a verse to drop out of the Bible than it is for it to be added and take over a line. Much easier. And the reason, and I'll give you a song from the zombies, no one told me about her, she's not there. If the verse, if the verse drops out, the next scribe doesn't know, she's not there, you know? So he just copies. But in addition, if you put an addition in, the guy who does it, as Tertullian pointed out, he could get whacked. You know, he mm -hmm. could lose his job. And the next scribe will notice in the next town. So it's always true that omission is easy, addition is highly unlikely. So the question is, uh, you cannot look at the Greek and say there were no omissions. Acts 8.37 is a textbook case. It's yeah. in about 15% of the Greek manuscripts. But it's clearly scripture. Even some of the contras, like James, James Snap will defend Acts 837 because it's so obvious in Scripture. You know, the verse doesn't make sense. It's in it's by Irenaeus and Cyprian again. Uh, so, so it's a sister verse to the heavenly witnesses. The same principles apply. It's obvious Scripture fall out of the Greek line. And the only difference is that the heavenly witnesses fell out more than Acts 837. But it's the same principle. Okay. Um, so we, we've got a question um, that's coming in online, and I, I'm going to hold this until the end because I want to get through all the points that we've got and then get to our questions uh, from the audience here. So um, let's talk a little bit about the grammatical structure. I and mean, this is the part of the conversation that, that one person says, you, you're not allowed to talk about this because you're not a Greek grammarian scholar, and you're not even allowed to quote Greek scholars. Um, for whatever reason. So if you could, let's talk a little bit about how the heavenly witness fits in with 1 John and the Johannine writings, um, particularly as it relates to parallelism with the word, uh, with the word flow, the grammar, and how without the heavenly witness it would result in solecism, wooden redundancy, and many other problems. So if you could, let's just talk about that a little bit. Okay, the one focus on this is the grammar. So let's take that, the specific grammar argument of a mismatch if you don't have the heavenly witnesses. This is not a complicated argument. Gender mismatch is easy to understand. You can read somebody about it. You can read different theories. You can look up constructio ad sensum, which is the attempt to say that it's okay anyway. And sometimes it is. Uh, and it's all easy to read and easy to understand as long as you put your mind to it. Sometimes people who are like American Indian Greek seminarians hold a Greek conversation, they can't feel the language, you know, but they think they're so expert because they learned a couple of things about passive aorist or whatever. So the but this is simple. This is simple conceptual stuff. In the seventeen hundreds 1780, one of the very best Greek scholars in the world, in the world, Eugenius Vulgaris, he wrote about a page and a half about the grammar of the heavenly witnesses. It was a beautiful writing. Basically said, you take out the seventh verse and you've got a, a solecism. It's terrible. Because it's masculine, uh, na uh, masculine grammar, it would be different if it was in reverse, but because it's masculine grammar. Now, I quote him, and I actually worked to get, uh, to get him translated properly, 
And uh, he, his argument alone opens up the door. The people who have responded to that, oh, he was followed by Frederick Nolan and Dabney and a, a few others. Uh, was it Dabney or was it, uh, I'm sorry, I'm mixing them up. Um, but he was followed by Frederick Nolan and a couple of others. Now, the, uh, I wish I remembered the other name. <laughs> the, okay, so um, in that grammar argument, there's nothing complicated to understand. You can read the argument in English, you know which word was masculine, you know which words are, which words are masculine, and which words are neuter. I spoke to somebody today who's a native Greek in Athens, a friend, and he said, and I asked him about something he had said. He pointed out that the grammar was a, a greater hole than you would normally expect because the witnesses are on one side as masculine, the three is on the back side, and the three nouns that are all neuter are in the middle. So he called that a hole, like an inverted bell curve, you know, in the grammar that, that somebody who really speaks Greek would say, whoa, what's going on here? Makes no sense. Now, when you put verse seven in, it all becomes one grammatical unit. And the, the masculine grammar of the father and the word controls the whole section. This is not complicated. It's a different explanation. Now, I'm not supposed to be able to talk about that because I didn't go to Greek grammar, but there's nothing there that's hard to, that's hard to understand. It's all very simple. Yeah. Now, you, there are nuances. If somebody comes along and says, like James White, what is masculine for this reason? Or like Barry Hofstadter, but witnesses is masculine for this reason. You can read it, you can understand it, and then you can see the, the error in it, okay? So sometimes I think that being a, a, a pidgin Greek speaker not even a speaker, a scholar, is worse than not knowing it alone at all. When you're looking at a simple, focused, clear issue and you study the history from top to bottom. Uh, Erasmus mentioned the grammar mismatch. He used the phrase torpid grammaticos in his annotation. What was he referring to? It, the squirming grammarians that sometimes translated. Because he knew that there was something amiss, but he didn't want to focus on that because he sort of didn't like the verb. You know, uh, Thomas Neogorgias uh, uh, mentioned that, and also a scholium from 900 tried to give a reason why. They said, well, it was masculine because of the Trinity, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so, but none of those really, you know, they all give a picture that people knew about this. It also was a factor in Gregory Nanzianzen. So the, 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 the mismatch is well known. Just because some 2020 Greek teacher in America who can't really speak the language writes up a little nothing paper, people like Snap jump on it and say, this is it, this is it, there's nothing there. But they don't know the history. They don't, they haven't read carefully uh, the, the, the history with um, uh, um, uh, Eugenius Vulgaris and Frederick Nolan and, and a bunch of other people. So, you know, I, I would assert that I, understand the issues around this a lot better than the American pseudo-seminarians. Pseudo so I don't know other Greek issues. You know, other Greek issues, I stay away from many others. Yeah. But this one is so simple. Okay. Um, so I think that we need to get you and James Snap to debate the credibility of First John 5-7, if that would happen. <laughs> um, okay, so let's see. Let's move to the next point here. We've got... You've got... Um, 
we've we've talked briefly about theorizing inclusion versus dropping out, and uh, you've talked about Eusebius and uh, Marcellum, but but I, real briefly we didn't we didn't spend a whole lot of time talking about the Arian Sabellian Orthodox. You've you've you mentioned Noland and Hills, um, but compared to the theorizing omission and insertion regarding um, the this particular verse, you're saying that it would be a lot more difficult to add in um, really any verse in the in, in Scripture, but specifically when it comes to the yeah. heavenly witness, like this would be astronomically nearly impossible to, to bring in such a blatantly um, obvious reference to uh, the nature of God, and obviously me as a Trinitarian, the Trinitarian God of Christianity. And uh, you're you're saying it's just it's it's such a a huge task that it's nearly impossible to even imagine that that's what happened in this particular text. So if you could just take a little bit of time to elaborate on what you've already um, touched on on the on a surface level there. Well, the theories of insertion have to be either an insertion in the Arian controversies or an insertion around 200 A.D. They got to be one or the other, or 150, 200, or by Cyprian. That's James's pet idea. Any such theory, the, the, we can, if you accept the Cyprian reference for what it obviously is, it was in his Bible, that throws away all the Arians. So then you have to say somehow it got in before Cyprian or by Cyprian? It doesn't make sense. Somebody added the verse in Latin at 100 AD in a manner that was more Johannan than John. I'll say that again. More Johannan than John, because it matched up with his word, it matched up with his other verse, it matched up with his witnessing uh, emphasis. This is, it, it's a non-starter, it didn't happen. There is no viable theory for the verse being added in, not at 150 AD, not by Scipion, and not in the Arian controversy. Uh, and if somebody's going to claim it was inserted, at least they have to say the general scheme of who and how and when. How did somebody be more Johannan than John at 150 AD and add it in so it could be read by Scipion? Or as I pointed yeah. out, Scipion writing it in its own, it's really impossible. Okay, so in terms of omission, there's two ways that things can get omitted. One is you have a similar dropping off at the end and somebody sees it and they, they drop, so they would drop from, they would drop the skip to the earthly witnesses. Easy to happen. It could have happened in a couple of manuscripts at 80 AD. I think John was probably written about 40, 50 AD. So it could have happened. And then once it happened, it doesn't have to be nefarious. The next scholar has a split line and he's got to choose. And he says, I don't really like this whole three and one. I think the original one was the one without. So uh, the one was only the earthly witnesses. So there's an easy vector of transmission combining those two elements, and the, the, the first, it could have been, whichever way it happened, combining those two elements, it's easy for the verse to drop out. It's virtually impossible for the verse to be added in. Yeah. That's the key element. And they don't want to discuss that. They don't want to give you a theory as to exactly how it went in. Well, I just think, you know, I mean, James tries to give a theory, but the holes are like Toroboro bombing holes. I mean, yeah. there's nothing there. Okay, so let's take that a step further, and then I want to move on to some of the questions that have that have come in and open it up to calls from the audience. And uh, you guys, if if you wanted to call in, wait until wait until we get done with our last um, 
um, little bit of questions here, which that number is going to be 816-866-0025. Uh, you're more than welcome to call in, but um, I'll let you know when to when to call that number. But So here's the, the last point that I want to touch on uh, before we get to some of those questions. One would be, um, you're, when we're talking about additions and omissions, um, and, and we're talking about the text critical side of, of the conversation when it comes to that and what made it into our Bible or what fell away from our Bible, you would say it's totally incompetent to understand the verse evidence evidences as, as it's related to the sister verse in Acts 8.37, which you had made a reference to earlier. And you say that Hort had animus before starting in particular to this partic- in, in this verse in Acts 8.37. So if you could um, give us oh, a... no, di- against the heavenly witnesses. Against the heavenly witnesses. He right, right, right. animus in 1851, he approximately, he wrote that we'll get those heavenly witnesses, those, you know, that's whatever way he put it, out of the Bible. This is when he was about two years into, into school studies or something. He was already working with Westcott with the idea that we've got to, that, that, that part of our work will be to get the First uh, John 5, 7 out of the Bible. Okay, go ahead. So let's talk, you'd mentioned that it's a sister verse, Acts 8.37 is a sister verse to 1 John 5.7. If you could um, just talk about that. What is that and, and what's the relation between these two? Okay, very good. Both verses are, are missing a verse, have a, a verse in Greek that's there in many evidences and not there in many evidences, okay? And mostly not there in Greek manuscripts. But both verses have compelling internal reasons why they should be there. With Acts 8.37, it's obvious. It answers the question of Acts 8.36. You take it out, and you've got a lacuna, like Laguna Beach. It's not there. Uh, you know, and, and so people, not textual critics for the most part, obviously, the verses should be there. It answers the question of Acts 8.36. What does prohibit uh, me from being baptized if thou believest that he is that Jesus is the Son of God, thou mayest. That's the answer to the question. You leave it out, we don't know the answer to the question. Now, in terms of evidences, both are totally rock solid in the Latin. Totally rock solid. Old Latin, Vulgate, uh, early church writers, Acts, they both have Cyprian, uh, the Acts uh, 37 has um, they, they, they both were in the Vulgate. Acts, uh, somebody will contend that, but they were. Acts 37. So they have a lot of similarities in evidences. And the real hardball textual critics will insist that neither verse should be in. But anybody with a little common sense can see that Acts 837 is scripture. And then it's uh, much simpler sometimes to see that the heavenly witnesses is of the exact same nature of a verse missing that obviously is there and that has wonderful evidences throughout the centuries in uh, church writings and councils and things like that. Yeah, and that's uh, that's one point that I had made um, with Peter Gurry when we're talking about what should and shouldn't be in the Bible and the relation of what is in the Bible to um, uh, theological arguments. Um, in particular, in, it, as, as it's referenced to this conversation that we're having right now, and I want to take a second to get into that part of the conversation with uh, where theology and scripture are related. Should should scripture drive theology? I think we all would say, yeah, scripture should drive your theology. And uh, I think what we've got is you've got a lot of um, additions or omissions in certain 
texts that are driven by theology. So a, a text-driven theology versus a theology-driven text. And, and I guess what I'm saying is, um, when we're talking about when we're talking about the heavenly witnesses and the earthly witnesses, you you use a term where you call what you use as a non-starter, and this will be the final question. and And then I want to read a couple of the comments that have been coming in, and uh, we can we can wrap it up and go from there. But when you describe the non-starter in relation to the allegorization of the heavenly witness out of the earthly witness. Can you explain what you mean here and kind of get into that concept a little bit more? Yeah, I'm not saying that the whole concept is a non-starter. It clearly did occur for whatever reasons. Maybe it was the residue of the heavenly witnesses, but it occurred three or four hundred years after John wrote. When I call it a non-starter, I'm talking about John penning his scripture. He's, if he was only writing, if he didn't have the heavenly witnesses in there, and he was only writing... There are three that bear witness, the, uh, the spirit, the water, and the blood. In their theory, he didn't have the earth in there. Uh, the, the idea that John, at, while he was writing the spirit and the water and the blood, was thinking about the Trinity and allegorizing them, it doesn't make sense. You know, you look at the scripture, he's writing clear scripture. So if you take out, if you take out the heavenly witnesses, it doesn't flow well. It's a disaster. But there's no way that he was, would, if he was thinking about Father and Word, he would write them. He wouldn't write Spirit, Water, and Blood when these are actually men who testify, and these are actually Trinitarian uh, persons in the Godhead. He would not write that way. So the non-starter relates to John himself when he wrote in the first century, when he wrote circa 50 AD. He was not thinking, if, if he did not write Father, Word, and Holy Ghost, then he was not thinking of the Trinity. If he wrote Father, Word, and Holy Ghost, then you want to say that he was thinking of the Trinity? You have a case, okay? But you don't have any such case if he was only working with the earthly witnesses. It's, it's an absurd theory. No real scholar would accept that unless they were fighting against, you know, we don't like the King James you know. Yeah. Okay, so um, let's transition. I, I was talking with Peter Gurry and Elijah Hickson, and uh, Bill Brown earlier, and um, specifically Elijah was calling me out because he, he, he was saying, you know, um, in reference to my argument that um, that uh, the, the transmission of the text it, as it's related to the New Testament has been kept to the stewardship of the church, to the believer, as opposed to the stewardship of the academy and, and an ecumenical movement um, with uh, a diversity of, of theological beliefs, and even ranging from um, non-believers to, be to, to believers to outright her heresies and heretics, um, and, and saying that God actually has given them the stewardship over the Word of God as opposed to the church, uh, the Bible-believing Christians who would, who would hold the, the Scripture above, um, above that in, in reference to... Um, Who's been given the stewardship? And they, they, the argument that Elijah was making was, um, it's really inconsistent for me uh, to have Stephen Avery on my podcast tonight when I'm taking the stewardship, uh, the position that the stewardship of the Word of God is something that's held in the hands of the church as opposed to heretics. And um, he's making a reference that he obviously would believe that your view on the Trinity is heretical. 
Um, so I'd like to take a second to kind of clear this up, give us exactly what your position is, and I want to read here what, what you had written on Facebook earlier. Um, you, had, you had said that you disagree with oneness theology and you are not anti-Trinitarian. You said that you, you've likened your belief to that of Jerome, Jerome, Erasmus, and Calvin, and then you even praised Wesley. So, and, and specifically you said that you're not subscribing to any specific creed um, or even the Athanasian creed. Uh, so I'd like to just take a, take a second and give us um, what your position is theologically as it's related to the Trinitarian doctrine, if you wanted to do that. If not, we can just keep it to the conversation of the text and move on. Well, the, the thing I want to emphasize is, in terms of the authenticity of our verse, it's not that important. The verse stands full and clear and strong, whether you are uh, Orthodox Trinitarian, unorthodox Trinitarian, uh, oneness, which is sometimes called rebellion, but who knows, uh, whatever. The verse is in the scripture. How we interpret it is, can, can be in a way that is consistent with our doctrine. The Arians never really liked it, but one of the strongest supporters of the verse in the 1800s was a somewhat wacky off-brand Unitarian named uh, John Jones, Ben David. He did a great job, too, defending the verse, finding, explaining different things. So, now, my own belief, I come from a oneness heretic, but I've also been very involved in Trinitarian uh, churches and, and fellowship and things like of that nature. Uh, it seems like the history of the, the... The first question is, is John even making an ontological point? Is he really trying to say that the 301 in essence or in substance rather than the 301 as one voice, okay? But let's allow that he's making an ontological point. It's still very, you could take that point and you can make it Trinitarian, you can make it oneness, you can make it something else, not that easily. So my own belief is that my defense of the heavenly witnesses, I worked hand in hand with Michael Maynard for many years. And he was a very, you know, he was a Baptist Trinitarian, and I was not. But that didn't matter. We both knew the verse was scripture, and we wanted to dig out the evidence. I don't really, a, a lot of people get scared about the verse, or they use it as why the New Testament is corrupt. You know, it's a big thing for that. Uh, oh, you must know the New Testament is corrupt. Look at 1 John 5, 7, it's a forgery. So my motivations are more in that realm. My personal beliefs are that, Maybe John was making an ontological point, but maybe it wasn't really Trinitarian Orthodox. Maybe it was sort of oneness, but I'm not going to fight about it, you know? Yeah. Uh, I'm happy either way. I just want the verse to be accepted as scripture, number one. Then we can discuss uh, exactly what point. I mean, Calvin said it was unity of consent, if I, if I remember. But if it's unity of consent, you do have a problem in the Greek, not in the Latin. Because the ending is a different, it's different. In Latin, it's the same, if I remember right. Maybe they're different now. It's uh, like that. So, um, you have a situation where many have argued, some people thought the verse was Arian. Rhodius, who's no dumb cookie, and, and Luther's teacher, John Bugenhagen, somehow thought it was an Arian blasphemy. I don't know how they got that. Can I figure it out? No. But I can tell you about some of the nuances. Yeah. So I would, I would say if your point of defending the heavenly witnesses is, I'm a Trinitarian and this is a great support of my doctrine, so I want to be driven by my belief, that's not exactly the right motive. 
The motive should be that the Word of God impels doctrine. Doctrine doesn't change the Word of God. So the belief should be what really yeah. was the Word of God. Then if you accepted that uh, the heavenly witnesses is the Word of God, then you could say, wow, that fits my Trinitarian doctrine, or that fits my oneness doctrine. But first determine that it is 100% the pure and perfect Word of God. Yeah. Now, anyway, I, I want to correct, can I correct one thing? I might have said, um, uh, I meant Dabney. I might have used Darby before, talking about the Granatic. Yeah, you, you said Dabney. Okay, good. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. Um, okay, so um, I hear you saying that it basically theologic your theology your theology should not drive what is and isn't scripture, but your your theology your doctrine should come from what is scripture, and that you you really believe that the argument should be over what the text actually is, and that's particularly what our conversation is. But you did go so far and give what your opinion is, and it seems like you're kind of torn on it that it could go either way. Um, it could be an ontological argument for the Trinity. It could be a oneness, uh, oneness doctrine, but you're open to the conversation on both sides. So um, it, it, it seems like I'm getting a pretty straightforward answer from you here that it, it could go either way, um, but it seems like the critics that you have um, are, are not giving you the same latitude that, uh, <laughs> yeah, like, no, you've, you've, you are saying it is a Unitarian passage, um, so I, I don't know. Do you want to respond to that or do you, do you just want to, um, kind of wrap up our conversation here and go to questions? Um, well, toward it being a oneness, I wouldn't say Unitarian. Unitarian is a charged word that often is against the deity of Jesus, against First Timothy 3.16. Yeah. I would never call it Unitarian. I would sort of sense that it may I would tend towards uh, it being com com comfortable and comfortable to a oneness slash Sabellian belief. On the other hand, if somebody wanted to see it the other way, that, look, this shows that there are three persons in the Godhead, word means son. Okay, that's a doctrinal point, at least that you could take out of 1 John 5, 7. I would, cons I would respect that point of view. I'd probably personally a little bit more comfortable that if it was meant to be an ontological statement that John was more expressing the oneness of uh, the fullness of the Godhead uh, dwelleth as one you know yeah but you know okay so I'm I'm hearing you say like obviously you you can see support for both sides you're leaning towards the oneness side of the conversation you can see towards the ontological side of the Trinitarian side um, and you can respect it you see credit credibility for it but you would disagree um, so that would that would be a little bit more um, straightforward on where where you're at, uh, and that would be a conversation that I'd like to you know obviously draw out more and and have a conversation kind of maybe follow up on that side of the conversation. But that would be for another day. Uh, but what I would say is um, why don't you why don't would would you like to kind of give a summarization of what you believe the best evidences for First John 5, 7 and the heavenly witnesses would be, and then we'll open it up to calls to come in and we'll read some of the questions that have come in online. Okay, good. I would actually start with the preservational imperative. God was not tricking the largest church body, the Latin body, by giving them a false scripture for, uh, for 2,000 years, you know, because it goes, well, 1,800. He was not tricking anybody. Now, you might say, but didn't he trick the Greeks by letting it drop out of the manuscript? Not the same thing. Something could drop out, but God was not putting in a false, phony, forged, whatever you want to call it, scripture, 
to trick his church. It never happened. So that's the preservational imperative. And that is a strong point. And that's closer to the confessional bibliology people who say this is what the church took. Although they start with the Reformation sometimes, but I'm saying they should start with the big Latin church. And God never gave a false scripture. Now, really, the, 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 it's very simple. I'll go into this, but I'll try to make it a little clearer. Number one, you have an incredible body going back to the old Latin manuscript, which are considered to be second century source and the speculum and evidences. They may be first century, actually. Uh, that, that line is almost totally for the heavenly witnesses. Now, the manuscripts themselves might be 500 and 800, but the line is considered to be uh, second century. Then you have the similar situation with the Vulgate and, the, and Jerome. All the Latin, 95, 98% of the Latin manuscripts are, in fact, uh, 95% are in Vulgate support the Vulgate. Okay, so the Latin is the, bulk, is the standard starting point. Then you add to that four super evidences that any one of which should be enough to take a critical thinking, a heart, the spirit, seeking. One of them is Cyprian, okay? If he, since he was quoting scripture, there's really no way it got into Hey, Stephen. One scholar who said hey, um, hey, we're losing the audio for some reason. It's, um, it's, it's really choppy. Okay. okay. Can you hear yep. me better now? Yeah, that's a lot better. You, well, if, you, had, uh, you had left okay. off with Cyprian. Okay. Yeah, Cyprian alone like I said with Piper, enough to prove the verse. Jerome's Vulgate Prologue, alone with the Latin lines, enough to prove the verse. Uh, the Council of Carthage, 484 AD, hundreds of Bibles all over the Mediterranean supporting the verse, spoken out against persecution. Uh, both sides had, had it in their Bible. Pretty much a, 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 a close to being, it's like a thousand manuscripts, was what Dorhut said. Uh, it's uh, that this evidence is incredibly strong. And, and also the fact that the supposed Latin corrects the Greek grammar and the other internal evidences, that's a fourth one. Those four are what I call super evidences. Any one of them with the basic Latin line evidences should be enough to say this is scriptural. But let me just move a little bit. But uh, all four of them, case closed. Now, I'm no fan of Gerald Posner and case closed in the Warren Commission, but here we have a true case closed. The, the heavenly witnesses is scripture. Okay. Then you have additional evidences, like a whole bunch of solid Greek supporting evidences that are not given by Wallace and White and Snap, like the Athanasius Disputation, the Synapsis of uh, Sacred Scripture and other things. And there's even one in, in the second century that's a good allusion to it. So all of these evidences in Greek, oh, the Eusebius ad Marcel, 100% Greek, uh, all of these evidences uh, to get, uh, are like corroborative to the basic Latin, the four super evidences, and then a whole ton of corroborative evidences. There is, and then you have the comparison of, of uh, the ease of inclusion and the difficulty of uh, the ease of omission and the difficulty of adding a verse. Yeah. So that's another one. That is the basic rundown of why a thinking critical thinker, including all my Reformation Bible buddies, should basically not be saying, oh, I don't know if we have much evidence. They should be saying, hallelujah, 
This is in our Bibles, and it is the yeah. Word of God. I, I wasn't trying to make fun of them, because I really love those guys. But I want them to be more robust in their uh, defense of the verse. One of them, one or two of them are. But, that's you know. good. Okay, so... Uh, Does that uh, cover? No, that's good. I really appreciate yeah. that. That's a that's a good way to conclude our, our conversation here. And now let's take a minute to get into some of the questions that have been coming in online. And if you're watching online, I want you to uh, call in with your questions, which you can do at 816-866-0025. And uh, you can call in now with your questions, and we'll take those calls first. I just put that number up on the screen, so you should be able to see that. It's 816-866-0025. And in the meantime, um, let me read some of the questions that have come in. I want to start with... Uh, probably the the most basic question or response that you get when you're talking about um, any particular verse or verses that you're saying are authentic and a critical text advocate would say well it's not authentic it shouldn't be in the bible and the argument that you get is well it doesn't affect the doctrine right and this particular person uh, mike says uh, he's watching on periscope says, is any doctrine lost by the variant of 1 John 5, 7? If so, what doctrine? So why don't you take a minute to address that particular question, if you could. Well, any uncertainty eliminates the most basic doctrine that we have the Bible, okay? Even before you get into other doctrines. Now, in other words, if you don't know that we have the Bible, if you think the Bible was mangled, if you think it has forgeries in the historic text, you cannot defend infallibility, inerrancy, etc., because you don't have a Bible. So you start with that one, which is low and sufficient. Now, would a doctrine, would the doctrine of the beauty of the Bible would be deformed totally when you take out the heavenly witnesses? That's not inerrancy and infallibility, but it's the beauty of the Holy Ghost inspiration upon John to write the Bible. Okay, so that's another one. When you get to does it. Acts 8.37, yes, you have an immediate doctrine that's destroyed when you take it out. It is the only baptism testimony scripture clear in the Bible coming against infant, infant um, uh, baptism because they can't give a testimony. It's believer's testimony. So for Acts 8.37, I would immediately say there's a fundamental doctrine that's lost when you take it out. That's a sister board. If you took out Acts, uh, 1 John 5, 7, I don't have an equivalent that you lose a particular doctrine, but that's the wrong way of looking at things. The, the, the people who say that are looking at it retrograde. They're looking backwards from being a believer and saying, if I don't have a verse here, maybe I can find it over there. And that's not sufficient. We need to have a Bible that can be declared to the lost, that can be defended to the skeptics and the liberals, okay? It's not sufficient to say, I think if you take out that Bible, maybe I can find the baptism testimony somewhere else. Well, you can, but even if you could, that's not sufficient. The sufficient, what really counts is what does the scripture say? What does the scripture declare? And then let the scripture inform your doctrine. Don't, don't deform the scripture to match your doctrine. Yeah. 
No, that's good. And I would give a couple of examples where I think it's pretty blatantly obvious that there's there's one particular verse that would absolutely change an entire doctrine. And one of those would be um, the reference in Matthew where it talks about uh, if, if any man be angry without a cause, um, then he is uh, he's sinning. So essentially what you're saying is uh, if you remove that little phrase, without a cause, um, now you've got a, a verse that's saying that if you're angry, that it's a sin to be angry. And if you take that and, and actually use the proper hermeneutics to show what Scripture is saying about sin, then, then the Bible is teaching that to be angry is sin. And obviously you see when Jesus gets angry at the Pharisees and he gets angry um, at the money changers in, um, in the temple, um, he gets angry. So if, if it's if it's sin to be angry, then you've got a blatant outright teaching that um, that Jesus was a sinner because he was angry. But if you have if that phrase is authentic, then you have a conditional clause that would show that um, what is and isn't sin based off of the cause. So if you remove the cause, then Jesus is a sinner. If you don't have the cause, then Jesus is not a sinner. Obviously, we would we would theologically say Jesus wasn't a sinner, but in the text itself, you have to bring that theology to the text rather than get that theology out of the text if that one phrase isn't there. And I'll give one more example. In the Old Testament, I think we all know who killed uh, Goliath, and uh, it wasn't Elhanan, or however you say his name, Elhanan. Uh, that in, in the NIV, it, it actually teaches, based off of a critical text, um, that David didn't actually kill Goliath, it was Elhanan. And um, that's, that's problematic for, for me as well. So those are two very open and specific texts that would change um, a doctrine or a teaching. Um, but that would be that. So let's, uh, let's go to our next question. We've got one as to uh, an explanation for the insertion of of the heavenly witnesses into Erasmus's edition of the TR. Can you explain um, the claim that uh, Erasmus inserted the comma into uh, his third edition of the TR? I'm sure that's a reference to um, typically the argument is that he made a rash wager that if anyone who could come up with a, uh, if anyone could come up with um, a, what am I trying to say? If anyone could come up with a manuscript that had it in there, that he would put it in there. Um, and obviously, that's that Jeff Riddle has a really good article on that, which is called Erasmus Anecdotes, where he addresses that particular point. But um, uh, what would your take be on that? Did, did Erasmus insert the comma into his third edition of the TR, and where would you go with that conversation? Okay. Uh, I don't mind somebody saying that he was under pressure when he inserted in the, in the third edition, there was no wager, you know, we know that. There was no promise, okay, we know that. But he was being given, it wasn't the only thing, he was being given a hard time on Romans 9, 5 and a number of other scriptures. But, if I remember right, that was one of them. If he, he, he inserted it and he was double-minded about it. He had put it in his paraphrase, he had put it in his ratio, ratio veritate, whatever the name, even before the third edition. He had, he wrote about it like he didn't really want it, but he he wasn't really uh, convic- convicted one way or the other. Remember, he put in his notes that the grammarians were squirming. Somehow, somehow, now listen to this. Oh, he was totally flummoxed by the Vulgate prologue. He actually ended up virtually accusing Jerome of forging the books, which is ridiculous, you know, 
But he was so flummoxed by that evidence. And he didn't have the out that, well, maybe he didn't show him, didn't write it. You know, so he was very uh, twixt in between. He also managed to keep even though he did an edition of Cyprian. This was noted by a writer uh, 150 years ago, maybe a little bit further. How did he leave that out? You know, he wasn't going to tell them because his position sort of being uncomfortable would go to pieces. Could he not know about it? He did a Cyprian edition. But even though it did not have the Dubianus reference, it did have the unity in the church the major one. He did it around 15, 15 or 20. So how did he keep that out of his annotations? That's a good question. The only real explanation is, and, and then he was under a lot of pressure. Eventually, he was, even after he put it in, and it was already in, and he was questioned at Valladolid in 1527, a fascinating study, when they put him up on a type of inquisition trial, you know, but he, he had a lot of supporters. So I would say that the answer to that is that you have to see Erasmus as a little bit contorted on the heavenly witnesses verse. Uh, and that the fact that he put it on the third edition, uh, whether under some pressure or not, is simply the providence of God. It needed to be there, you know, and some other people saw that clearer than him. How's that? That's good. Oh, I want to say one thing about the verses. Don't forget the ascension in the ending of Mark in Luke 24, right. 51, which does not exist in the corruption version. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah, um, what he's making a reference to is obviously going to be the ending of Mark. A lot of people would say, well, there's no account of the resurrection, um, which isn't in... Right, yeah. that's what I was going to say. It's not entirely... That's not true. It's it's a reference to the ascension. The ascension is uh, obviously a key point um, of the doctrine of the ascension of Christ. But, um, okay, so let me tell you again, guys, if, if, you've, if, you, if you would like to call in... We can get your question in. It's 816-866-0025. Um, it seems like everyone's wanting to type it in, and that's fine. Uh, let's go to. Let's do two or three more questions, and then we'll wrap it up. Um, so we've got one question here that says, "Can Avery explain the importance of uh, the forgery exposed by Vala, quote unquote, the donation of Constantine manuscript, and its importance to prove the comma?" No, I don't know. I mean, I know about Vala exposing the donation. I do not know. I have to. I'd have to look it up. Maybe he can give me a reference uh, of how that relates directly to the heavenly witnesses. I don't know. Well, Nick, if you want to call in and have a real quick conversation with us, you can. Uh, if not, that's totally cool too. We've got one more question here. Let's see. We've got Luke Carpenter who writes, "What do you think about Turretin's statement on this quote?" There's no truth in the assertion that the Hebrew edition of the Old Testament and the Greek edition of the New Testament are said to be mutilated, nor can the arguments used by our opponents prove it, not 1 John 5, 7, for although some formerly called it into question, and heretics now do, uh, yet all the Greek copies have it, as Sixtus Sinensis acknowledges, uh, they have been the words never doubted truth and contained in all the Greek copies from the very times of the apostles. What would your comment be on that? Is that Turretin? Is that Turretin? I'd have to, um, uh, who is the, who's being quoted on that? Uh, yeah, it's Turretin. Okay. Well, Turretin has been mangled some. Now, I did not remember him saying, in the version that I read, 
that all the copies from the times of the apostles, although he might have been talking about the Latin there, but when he talks about the approved uh, copies, had it, he was actually apparently referencing the, the Reformation Bible TR copies. And people have taken that to mean that he was saying that all the manuscripts had it. I wrote this up. It's on my, it's on my pure Bible form because I ran into that from one of the, uh, uh, Michael, uh, one of the textual scholars. And I had to look at the Turretson thing. And as far as I could tell, the only thing that was there that was misinterpreted was that he was talking about the approved manuscripts of the TR, not all the manuscripts. Now, there was something of what you quoted. I'd have to look again. I think I remember writing about that, too, but it's not right in my mind right now. Uh, they could email me, you know, go, or they can come on my forum, or they can come on, uh, they can hit me directly on Messenger uh, or, or my wall, and they can ask me there. Okay. Awesome. Okay. Well, I think that's a good place for us to leave off. Uh, and again, thank you. Thanks again for coming on, Stephen Avery. It's been really good to have you. Uh, let me see what this last thing here. Um, people can't call if they are watching on phone. That's a good point. All right. So, anyways, um, thanks again for coming on, Stephen Avery. It's been really nice to meet you and to have a conversation with you and to talk about. Um, such a great text of, um, and really something that's so important when it comes to the credibility of the Word of God. So um, again, thank you for coming on. And if you would take a second to tell people where they can connect with you on your email and uh, where they can connect with you on your Bible forum as well to get more of uh, the stuff and uh, the conversations and the work that you've put out there um, along these lines of text criticism. That'd be great. Thanks. Yeah, I'll do that quickly. Facebook, uh, the easiest way, I'm under Stephen Avery, but it's easy to find me on the group called Pure Bible, one word. Just go to that group, you'll see me all over the place. Outside of Facebook, I put a lot of my research on www.purebibleforum.com. So if you go there, you'll see a lot of stuff, okay? Uh, it's, it's sometimes it's a little hokey-dokey because I'm doing research. Uh, it's not really a discussion forum. If they want to email me directly, they're not on Facebook, they're not on browsing the internet, purebible at gmail.com is good. Purebible at gmail.com. And I'll give you a text number that they can also text me. 520-442-3322. I can get texts there and, and calls. But that's not my regular phone. That's a special phone I have, and they can reach me there. Thank. Oh, by the way, I want to compliment you on being a very well-informed and probing and discerning moderator. It really made it easier for me. Amen. Hey, man, I need my ego padded all I can. So <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun, Stephen. Maybe we can connect and do something like this in the future. Um, that's good. Hey, you know what? Um, I think that anyone who has as much controversy around them, it can be a good thing or it can be a bad thing, but it's, it's definitely worth um, investigating into what someone is saying that's creating so much controversy. And in this case, it's just so simply a guy who is taking a stance um, that uh, this particular verse in the Bible is authentic. And it's, it's just so strange to see um, so much controversy around something like that. Um, but again, I do appreciate you coming on, and I'll cut to my closing scene, and we can connect later in the future and move on from there. So anyways, thanks again, and have a good night. Thank you. Blessings in Jesus' name.
Okay. Absolutely. All right, guys, I'm going to go to my closing scene here and give you a brief update on what to expect in the upcoming few weeks. I've got, uh, let's see, John Treat is going to come on on March 14th. I'm going to take next week off. Uh, Last week, I didn't do a podcast on my podcast, but I was on the uh, Reason and Theology podcast, which is a Catholic podcast, and we did a review with Lewis Dizon um, on the debate that he and I had on the doctrine of justification. So if you get a chance, go check that out on their podcast. Uh, It's on YouTube. It's on uh, basically all the audio podcasts as well. Um, But that was a really good conversation. We got into some deep um, topics as it relates to works and faith. So that's definitely worth listening to. But anyways, so I'm working on um, finding a debate for Mark Ward and uh, the readability of the King James Bible. Uh, We're we're still working on that. That's going to happen. But Jonathan Sheffield, as I mentioned earlier, is going to come on. I have a date for that. I just can't remember what it is. Uh, but that'll be either towards the end of March or the beginning of April. And uh, then Chris Date and uh, Scott Smith are going to be coming on to do a debate on the doctrine of hell. Is it, is, is it conditional immortality or is it um, eternal conscious torment? One, I, I hold the same view as Scott Smith does, and, and really because I've spent so much time studying this with Scott, on the, the, the relation of the atonement to the resurrection. And uh, that's going to be a really interesting conversation. So you guys should stay tuned for that. That's going to be the April 4th at 2 p.m. There's a lot more coming in um, and stuff to schedule uh, with dates to give you all. But that's kind of a wrap for today. A good conversation to have. I, I really am, am glad to be able to do something like this with Stephen. I think it was profitable. We do have some disagreements uh, on the Trinitarian doctrine versus oneness doctrine as it relates to the nature of God and uh, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, God the Father. But that's worth that's worth exploring. It, it seems like he leans towards the oneness side um, and sees the, the credibility for the arguments towards the Trinitarian side. Um, but definitely something worth, definitely a conversation worth having. So um, I, I do believe that's an essential of the faith um, when it comes to the Trinitarian doctrine. But anyways, guys, that'll be a wrap for today. Thanks for sticking with us. And be sure and like, share and rate us uh, online or review us on podcasts. Um, That'll help this podcast to grow, but more importantly, it'll help to get the word out uh, and get the gospel to the lost, and especially when it comes to the credibility of the word of God. I I did have a Muslim apologist who who wrote me um, earlier this week and was was asking about some of the the changes in Sinaiticus where tech scholars just put so much credibility to to that particular manuscript. And... uh, is, is writing a book on the inconsistencies of, of the Christian uh, Bible because of conversations like this, conversations that we're having, where a lot of text scholars would say, no, it's not authentic, it shouldn't be in there, but yet we see it in our Bible. So um, I think it's worth fighting over. I think it's worth taking a stand. Uh, what is what is the Bible? Um, and how do, how do we draw our doctrine out of something that we, you know, would have conversations over whether it's authentic or not? So anyways... Guys, that's that's the importance of the conversation that we're having. It really does have an impact in the real world um, that isn't just a conversation to have on a podcast, but one that impacts somebody's uh, uh, faith, one that impacts somebody's ability to believe the gospel based off the credibility of the Bible that the gospel is in. So anyways, God bless you all, and have a good evening.